You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning, America. Welcome to A Veteran Story on AmericasWebRadio.com. I'm Pete Mecca, your host. Folks, uh, I want to make you an apology to my listeners and, and maybe to the station manager and owner, David Moxley. We had audio problems for a couple months, and guess what? It was all my bad. I had a cell phone that was uh, probably manufactured uh, during uh, the reign of Julius Caesar in Rome. Um, <laughs> and then I got a new one, and I uh, thought the sound was great. I had it all the way up, and I did. I had the sound all the way up for the ringer. And then I did what most men don't like to do. I read the instructions and found out how to get the sound up on the audio. Uh, so we have those problems solved. I hope and pray that we do. And my guest today is a man who has the patience of Job. Uh, this is his third interview because the first two had audio problems because of me. And I welcome him back. He is uh, Captain Brian Settles, a retired Boeing 757 airline pilot. He graduated from Ball State University in Muncie, Indiana, as a distinguished military graduate in the Air Force ROTC program. There he earned a bachelor's degree in secondary education in Spanish, Spanish in 1966. He later completed his master's of art degree in international relations at the University of California, Southern California. He completed undergraduate pilot training in the United States Air Force, pinning on his Air Force wings in October of 1967. He volunteered to fly the F-4 Phantom jet fighter and survived 199 aerial combat missions in Vietnam. He spent 30 years as an airline pilot, retiring in 2004 with 20,000 jet flight hours under his belt. He is a member of the Atlanta chapter of the Tuskegee Airmen and is author of Smoke for, Vel- excuse me, Smoke for Breakfast, a Vietnam Combat Pilot Story. And also he has a new book out, which he'll talk about shortly. Uh, he is the next generation of red tail fighter pilots, as he says, full of guts and glory and the stuff that combat pilots are made of. Captain Brian Settles, welcome back to the program, sir. Uh, good morning, uh, Pete. Uh, thank you so much for uh, being diligent enough to uh, make sure this interview happened. I'm uh, proud to be here and looking forward to it. It's a gorgeous sunny day here in Atlanta, Georgia. That's a gorgeous sunny day uh, down here in Florida, too, but I bet you we're a little bit warmer than you guys are. Correct, correct. <laughs> All right, Brian, you had a very, very unusual childhood, extraordinary childhood. Uh, Tell our listeners a little bit about your background, uh, your childhood. Go ahead. Well, uh, it was kind of an auspicious uh, beginning, um, given that um, I was uh, deposited in the Lincoln State Orphanage uh, when I was seven days old by my mother that couldn't keep me because... um, there was too many pressures on keeping a biracial baby back there in the uh, 40s. So I spent the first three years of my life in the Lincoln State Orphanage, and and for, it took me years and years to realize uh, what a blessing it was for 
my mother and adoptive father back in Indiana to be informed by the welfare department that there was a biracial baby in the Lincoln State Orphanage for them to come out and take a look at and adopt. So being that they couldn't have children, they got on the train in, uh, in uh, Muncie and came to Chicago and on out to Lincoln, Nebraska, where they saw me and signed the paperwork, fell in love with me, and took me back to Muncie, Indiana, where the drama began. Because being a biracial baby uh, with light skin and, and uh, 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 Caucasian features, even though I did have curly hair, I grew up in an all-black neighborhood, which was characteristic of so many cities across America during the uh, mid-40s. So growing up in an all-black neighborhood uh, presented its own set of uh, challenges. And, of course, trying to fit in and belong uh, was one of those challenges. I always tell audiences that there was there was a, two groups of children waiting outside the house for me to come out. And one group admired me and envied me and wanted to be like me. The other group wanted to kick my booty. And uh, in, interestingly enough, it's the, it's the, it was the tough ones that didn't want to accept me because of my light skin and, and curly hair that really uh, gave me my strength and my uh, spirit for perseverance. And that really led me to um, excel in uh, basketball and football because I knew that if I was good enough uh, to, to, to be on the varsity when I got to high school, that uh, I would be envied rather than uh, despised. So that was um, my beginnings in the Muncie there. Uh, I say one of the blessings that I had uh, being adopted by the mother that adopted me. Unfortunately, my father bailed out uh, after... Uh, eight years of marriage, I mean, I was eight years old, and he left home, and my mother raised me and my sister, who was also adopted out of the same orphanage a few years after me, but the thing is, is that my mother was college educated, and uh, she could not get a, a teaching job in the Muncie school system because they didn't want to hire black teachers in the Muncie public schools, so she she ended up, since she had a master's degree, ended up being hired as a librarian at the Muncie Public Library, and that's one of the great blessings that I had being adopted and taken out of the orphanage, but then being adopted by a, a woman who was very inspired with education and books. And so that gave me additional incentive to excel in academics and then also uh, to uh, bolster my potential for an athletic scholarship. You are, uh, I, I know she was a librarian, and that bred the love of books in you to where later in life you have already published two books. Um, I, I can imagine it was a, a wonderful experience having a mother uh, be a librarian. Well, it was, and, and the thing is, is that um, uh, being that I was adopted and she knew some of my struggles, um, uh, she was so proud, you know, she was so proud of, of uh, my athletic uh, accomplishments and uh, knew that, I mean, we all knew that I was going to get a scholarship to either play football or basketball in college. But as I tell audiences all the time, uh, our dreams don't always come true. And I had the misfortune to uh, tear my medial collateral ligament playing basketball on the, on the varsity 
twice in my junior year, eight weeks apart, which oh. uh, knocked me knocked me out of the uh, the, the the tournament for the, my junior year. I didn't play football my senior year, which I had made all state in my junior year, and um, so all of a sudden my hoop dreams and gridiron dreams had been shattered, and I ended up registering late for Ball State University, which was there in my hometown. My mother had gotten both of her degrees from there. And um, interestingly enough, in the hallway outside the registrar's office, I ran into the equipment manager of the athletic teams at, at the high school in the hallway, and he said, B, you got to come and get on the drill team. And I said, drill team, man? What is, what, what's a drill team? Like He said, well... We're going to we're going to uh, do drill competition at different universities, and we're going to uh, drink beer and chase coeds. And so a couple of those, a, a couple of those options didn't sound that bad to me. And I said, "Well, how do you get on the drill team?" And he said, "Well, you've got to sign up for Air Force ROTC." I said, "ROTC?" I said, "Do you have to wear a uniform?" And he says, "Well, only once a week." I said, "Man, I don't know about this ROTC thing." I had never, Pete, I had never, ever uh, entertained any idea of the military or Air Force ROTC or anything like that. But on a whim, I signed up for Air Force ROTC to be on the drill team. You know, boys will be boys, gung-ho and all that kind of stuff. Give me 25 push-ups if you mess up a drill maneuver. And so I ate that stuff up. But I explain to audiences all the time that, Parents have to be careful who their children run around with because the interesting thing on that drill team is two-thirds of the dudes on the drill team wanted to be Air Force pilots, something I had never contemplated. And so all of a sudden, you know, I'm hanging out with guys that are in ROTC with me, but they're going in active duty to be pilots. And my buddy who had talked me into joining ROTC to be on the drill team Said B. Said I'm going to pilot training after graduation, and uh, I was a language major and uh, studying to be a secondary education teacher. And he said, "Well, when you go in the Air Force, I said if you're not on a pilot, you're on the second team. Pilots are on the first team, and and uh, you ought to fly if you can." So just like that, I chose to to fly airplanes to look good and to be on the first team. <laughs> and Brian, let me ask you something about that. Did, were you, did you ever fly before you went into uh, uh, Air Force ROTC? The, at that time, uh, the uh, Air Force detachments around different institutions had the flight instruction program, uh, FIP program, where candidates for Air Force pilot training had an opportunity to get some flying training in a Cessna 172 to, for the faculty members in the Air Force ROTC to determine whether they could walk and chew gum at the same time and would really kind of uh, uh, solidify their inspirations and, uh, and the goal of going forward with fl- flying. So that was the only flying that I had done. But interestingly enough, uh, my junior year in uh, ROTC, they uh, send you to summer camp for a month. And as, as fate would have it, as I told you at the beginning of the broadcast, I spent my first three years in the Lincoln State Orphanage in Lincoln, Nebraska, 
And wouldn't you know that that's where I got assigned to go to summer camp, the Lincoln Air Force Base in Lincoln, Nebraska. Huh. And that's where I that's where I took my first uh, airplane flight. It was a KC-135 tanker mission that took off at at, uh, at sunset and didn't land till about ten o'clock that night. But I'll tell you, I, I sat there taking notes and just totally, you know, mesmerized by the whole overwhelming experience of these pilots up there flying the airplane and rolling down that runway and taking off and going up and doing an air-to-air refueling at night. I mean, it was like um, so magical. And that probably, you know, set the course for me following through and, and going ahead and uh, and, uh, and uh, pursuing aviation. I understand. we got about one minute before our first break, Brian, but we have a, a something in common. I have flown the 172. That was a good little airplane and a good trainer. The first time you got behind the controls, that little 172, how'd you like flying that airplane? Well, um, they say that uh, athletes, you know, uh, have something going for them flying because they've got good coordination. But I was a little jerky, a little jerky on the controls, I remember. And um, and the instructor saying, uh, you know, make your uh, control changes smoother and smoother, but... Interestingly enough, we didn't even have a we didn't even have a uh, a runway. We 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 did our flights in a cow pasture outside of Muncie, and I could been when I was land, when I was landing and taking off, I could see cows in the pasture as I landed and took off. Been there and done that, Brian. We're going to our first break. Uh, we'll be back in a couple minutes, folks. Stand by. Whether cruising the strip at a '57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, I am Roger B., host of the Locked and Loaded Show on America's Web Radio. Be sure to join us live every Tuesday at 1500 hours for the latest in gun news, gun products, gun politics, and other gun-related stuff. That's Tuesday, 1500 hours, America's Web Radio. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. All right, folks, we are back with Captain Brian Settles. Uh, due to uh, knee injuries and a uh, uh, couple other things, his hopes for a hoop or gridiron career uh, went up in smoke, but yet he traded a basketball and football uniform for a fire pilot's G-suit on his decision to fly jet fighters. Tell us a little bit about that, uh, Captain Settles. Well, it's uh, it's amazing how these uh, circumstances join to, uh, you know, create the path that you go down. But I do tell audiences many times that um, uh, the Lord, I think, didn't didn't think that I was handling the stardom of athletics too well. 
so he decided to point me in another direction. And um, uh, when I graduated from Ball State, uh, I had done well enough in my academics and leadership that, that I got a distinguished military graduate uh, designation. And then I was off to um, Laredo Air Force Base where, you know, uh, you flew the Stephanie Cessna 172 uh, for uh, about six weeks. If you did okay in that, you graduated to the subsonic T-37 jet trainer. And uh, that was another four months. And then your last six months approximately was spent in the supersonic T-38, which was really a you know, a rocket with short wings on it. It was an amazing aircraft. But the thing is, is that I was fortunate enough at in, uh, the T-38s, there were only two black instructors on the, uh, the base at Laredo. And uh, my instructor, uh, Dave Ramsey, was a West Point graduate who had transferred over to the Air Force because of the... Um, uh, the number of aircraft in the inventory that were available to fly. Well, he wasn't even available when they divided up the students uh, with the instructor pilots, and they drew drew my name out of a hat for him. And so I was able to be the only black student in my class who had the only black instructor in T-38 in my squadron. <laughs> and the thing is, is that, uh, you know, I... I, I I didn't know that he, that at the time, that he was harder on me than the other the students that he flew with. And I asked him one time when we were toward the end of the program, why was he so hard on me? And he said, the thing is, he says, I was proud of your progress in pilot training, but I, I wanted to make sure that if you flew with any guest instructor, that you were so sharp that they would have nothing but good things to say about your flying. So I was harder on you than the other students. And while it was difficult, you know, having somebody, you know, beating you over the head all the time about your, your bonehead moves, it did make <laughs> me a better pilot. And I think he decided what uh, what students of his were going to pilots, were going to fighters, who were going to uh, uh, tankers, who were going to um, uh, uh, cargo uh, operations. And he said, B, he said, you, you belong in a fighter. You belong in a fighter because of your attitude and the way you fly. And at that time, Vietnam was cranking up. This was 1967, and Vietnam was really cranking up, and there weren't very very many single-seat fighter assignments available uh, at that time, but most of the, the fast-mover assignments were in the F-4, which, of course, you started off as a co-pilot in the F-4, and I thought in the final analysis that that was an excellent starting position for me because... I don't think I would have wanted to have a front seat assignment as a neophyte pilot right out of pilot training. And uh, it was yeah. a chance to get my experience. But I volunteered to fly the F-4 knowing that it was going to get me sent to Vietnam. And and I had grave reservations about uh, participating in the war. But I did want to have a chance to fly that F-4. And, and even to this day, it ends up being the most incredible uh aspect of my aviation experience that I ever had. I bet. Uh, you know, we. I'm going to get to your uh, uh, service in Vietnam in just a minute. You mentioned the T-37. I think they called that the Dragonfly, didn't they? Uh, it was Trainer? called the Tweet. It was called the Tweet. The tweet. Okay. Because it had it a, a high-pitched high engine uh, noise. 
Yeah, that was subsonic, but I think they used that in Vietnam, didn't they? They did. As a matter of fact, the uh, the Vietnamese uh, Air Force uh, flew uh, the A-37s, which were T-37s that were convi- uh, configured for uh, carrying um, uh, bombs on the uh, inboard pylons. Yeah, that was that was a neat little uh, a jet. I, I I wish I could got my hands uh, on those controls and everything. Do you remember the little? Uh, it was a, a Rockwell, I believe. Rockwell uh, Tiger, the little F five Tiger. I don't I don't see a, a pic, I don't see an image of it. I, I probably have seen okay. it, but I don't remember what it looked like. Mm-hmm. Did you watch Top Gun with Tom Cruise? I did. I did watch Top Gun, yes. Yeah. Okay. All the enemy aircraft that were painted black in that movie were F-5s. Okay, like, okay. Or, 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 or maybe the Northrop. Maybe it was Northrop. I, I don't remember. Uh, interesting thing about that airplane, uh, I drove past the um, uh, Northeast Airport the other day, and there's two F-5s sitting out there on the runway. Somebody's still flying those things, uh, which is great. Yeah. Yeah, the F-5, I think. Go ahead. No, that's fine. We're we're okay for the break and everything. It's still a few minutes away. But I want to bring this up. When you got to the F-4 Phantom, uh, that was a workhorse in Vietnam, much like the 105 Thunder Chief. What, uh, right. what did you think? What did you think when you got behind the controls for the first time on that F uh, F four Phantom jet? Well, luckily, Air Force pilot training had had uh, delivered the goods on its uh, preparation, you know, phase. Uh, one thing great about Air Force uh, training is that the uh, the syllabus for training on different aircrafts was pretty much uniform all the way through. So that you studied the same systems and the, and uh, the, uh, had the same simulator uh, rides and things. And by the time I got to the F four, like I said, it was uh, it was like a dream come true. You, you I guess, a little old country boy from um, uh, orphanage in uh, Nebraska, growing up in Muncie, and then here you are sitting in a in a, a Mach two uh, fighter jet that's dive bombing at night and and doing. Uh, Fingertip formation—that was the most amazing thing about it. Uh, to, to to once the the front seaters knew who you were and knew your flying ability, to be able to get that uh, F4 handed off to you by the front seater on the climb out from traffic, make the join up on lead, get into fingertip formation, which is three foot wingtip separation at 350, 400 knots. Uh, flying to the target area, and this is day or night, uh, was absolutely uh, a dream come true and, and, and hard to wrap your mind around that you were really doing what you did. And, of course, yeah. the, dive bombing, the dive bombing at night in Laos and, and Vietnam, North Vietnam was, was something out of this world. Yeah, I can imagine that. Also, the, the listeners may not be familiar with the F-4 Phantom a jet fighter. You talked about the front seat and the back seat. Uh, describe that a little bit about what did the front seat guy do and what did the back seat guy do? Well, uh, that, that was the probably the uh, complaint that, that uh, back seaters had about uh, being uh, assistant co-pilot was that uh, you sat in the back seat 
the front seater generally took the airplane off with, particularly with armament, took the airplane off. But he had all the controls for flying the airplane, instrument panel, etc. And um, he could sh- uh, shut the throttles off from the front seat. They couldn't be shut off, as I recall, from the back seat. But we still had the throttles in the back seat. And we had pretty much the same instrument display. He had all the bomb um, uh, station uh, readouts, instrument readouts up in his his cockpit. And so the the co-pilot was basically a reading checklist all the way through the uh, start engines, through taxi out, through takeoff, after takeoff, cruise, and then coming back in for descent and for landing. He read the checklist. He read the bomb, uh, the bomb uh, armament checklist on setting up the proper stations to be dropped. The front seater did the dive bombing from the front, and the back seater was responsible for calling out dive angle, airspeed, and um, altitude because the ordnance were set at a certain uh, setting in the uh, bomb checklist depending on whether you were doing 45-degree dive 30-degree dive or 15-degree dive, and you had to pickle or release the bombs at a certain altitude and airspeed. So you were calling all of that off as you're screaming toward the ground from 25,000 feet and uh, and releasing in time to be able to pull out 5 or 6G pullout to keep from impacting the ground. Whoa, okay. Did, did you, from 20,000 feet... Dived into. Did you break the sound barrier going in for the the bomb run? No. Well, you had to control the airspeed in the dive so that you 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 didn't exceed the, uh, the ballistics uh, parameters for the air ordnance that you were dropping. Normally, we oh, would be right. dropping at about 450, uh, 450 knots, uh, which is close to the sound barrier. When you get up to 500, 550, now you're getting close to the speed of sound. But we normally drop 400 to 450, 475 knots, which is about 550 miles an hour. And you're going toward toward the ground at about four to 6,000 foot a minute, so you're really screaming toward the ground. (laughs) Whoa. So I'm understanding that if you probably broke the sound barrier, the plane would be going faster than the ordnance you dropped. Is that correct? Well, you had a, an area that you were concerned concerned about that, and and we did have a couple of uh, nervous Nelly uh, front seaters that sometimes uh, didn't didn't drop the ordnance properly, and we actually had a couple of incidents where the, the fins on the bombs actually contacted the bottom of the fuselage of the F four. <laughs> oh my goodness gracious! All right, that would have made that would that would have made your day if you blew yourself up. <laughs> yeah, that'd make your day, but that'd be your last day. Uh, we are going to get into your Vietnam service uh, just for a little bit now because we're approaching our next uh, commercial. But you uh, were stationed uh, in I Corps. That's usually the Marines up there uh, near the name with the uh, 366 TAC fighter wing. Uh, I think you were Correct. there in in August of 1968. You guys were known as the gun fighters. And we'll get to yeah. that uh, when we come back from our second break, uh, Captain Settles. Stay with us. Good deal. Good deal.
Still there? Oh, yeah. Okay. He'll come back on and do the three, two, one deal. Okay, sure. What are they advertising during the break? Uh, the uh, Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame, uh, which is a okay. great organization. Uh, I've done two stories on, on the, the uh, president down there and also the man who uh, formed that brilliant group. Uh, there's also, uh, we, we do have sponsors, uh, and, yeah. they all, and they advertise their programs and things like that. Um, okay. We are we are quickly becoming what's what's known as the Veterans Radio Program. Uh, if you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, I am Roger B., host of the Locked and Loaded Show on America's Web Radio. Be sure to join us live every Tuesday at 1500 hours for the latest in gun news, gun products, gun politics, and other gun-related stuff. That's Tuesday, 1500 hours, America's Web Radio. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on The Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctor's conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. All right, folks, we are back with Captain Brian Settles, F-4 fighter pilot, Vietnam. Uh, Brian, you get to uh, Da Nang in August of 1968 with the gunfighters. Why were you guys called the gunfighters? Well, every unit, you know, had a, a designation of uh, of uh, that kind of uh, uh, captured what the essence of their mission was, and and uh, it was just uh, because of the 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 symbol. Uh, that they used for the F-4s out of Da Nang, they had a big picture of a Su-16 gun pod shooting uh, bullets, uh, you know, on this kind of a cartoonish-looking uh, character with a, uh, a, uh, a joker that looked like a phantom with a big big uh, black hat like Abraham Lincoln might have worn and a big cape on his shoulders standing beside this cannon shooting these 20-millimeter shells. And so that kind of was, as far as I know, the beginning of the gunfighter designation. We had three F-4 squadrons at Da Nang that were under the umbrella of the 366 TAC fighter wing, and my squadron was the Wild Boars, B-O-A-R-S, Wild Boars, the 390th TAC fighter squadron. As a matter of fact, on my first, uh, on my tour, uh, Richie... uh, Richie, uh, Steve Richie, who ended up becoming an ace uh, subsequently to uh, 1968, he was a front seater in one of the sister squadrons, as was uh, uh, Lloyd Newton, 
uh, Lloyd Fig Newton, who became a four-star general, one of the, the few four-star African-American generals in the Air Force. He was there wow. as a backseater in a sister squadron, too. Yeah, did, did you do a lot of escort, uh, uh, the squadrons, did they do a lot of escort duty in, into North Vietnam? Well, uh, in 68, November of 68, I believe it was, in order to uh, push along the Paris peace talks, President Johnson suspended bombing uh, missions in North Vietnam, which then uh, almost eliminated the air-to-air uh, encounters with uh, the MiG jets coming out of North Vietnam. And, um, and uh, the only missions that we flew uh, to North Vietnam were... Um, our F-4, reconnaissance F-4s out of of uh, Cameron Bay that would fly up, and we would escort them up to North Vietnam for their camera missions. And we had uh, uh, a assignment that if they got fired upon, we were free to return fire. But otherwise, then, most of our uh, bombing and interdiction and, and um, uh, combat sorties were flown uh, in southern Vietnam, and in in uh, Laos, which of course we weren't there. Yes, uh, I'm, I'm very aware of that. <laughs> we were not there in Laos, and that's what I did. Uh, you, you know, I remember asking you during our interview uh, if you were called a special mission, and you said piloting the F four was a special mission. Uh, tell us about sitting on, on duty on the uh, with your Phantom cocked and ready to go at a moment's notice. Yeah, well, as I had mentioned, uh, the um, probably the most uh, exciting duty that could be either uh, all the way the most boring duty you could do or the most exciting, <coughs> excuse me, was sitting on alert where we would have uh, 12-hour shifts, 6 o'clock to 6 o'clock, and 6 o'clock evening until 6 a.m., We'd go out, we'd report for duty, go out to be assigned an F-4, and they had uh, F-4s that were uh, loaded with different armaments depending on the mission that they might be sent on. And uh, we had the hydrags and napalm. We had uh, ones that were just loaded with uh, napalm and the, the pistol, the 20-millimeter uh, cannon, uh, and uh, it had an air-to-air air defense uh, component also. But we cock the airplanes, get them ready to go, uh, tune and, and um, uh, peak up the inertial navigation system, and then shut it down and go in the alert facility and occupy ourselves with writing letters home, reading books, watching sea uh, movies and uh, that kind of thing, waiting for the phone to ring. And I'll tell you that when that phone rang, it was the most frightening thing in the world. It was like somebody threw a rattlesnake in the middle of the room because that 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 phone would go off and everybody would jump up and touch almost hit their head on the ceiling trying to get to that phone to shut it off to see who was being scrambled and uh, it would be the command post saying scramble three and four scramble seven and eight and uh, you, you wouldn't even know where you were going you'd run out of the alert facility the uh, crew chief would be cranking up the police unit to provide the air for the pneumatic start for the engines and uh, you'd be getting uh, strapped in your seat, getting the inertial navigation system going, and we would be out, out taking off on the runway within seven minutes 
of that phone ringing. Wow. And uh, we would find out what the mission was once once we got airborne. And I tell you, the, 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 the most... The most high pucker factor missions that we flew on alert was if there was a downed crew member someplace in Laos or North Vietnam, and we had to participate in a SAR, search and rescue effort. And that was the one time that uh, all the operational procedures were suspended to do anything necessary to be able to rescue a downed crew member. And that was when we were allowed to get down in the weeds and and, uh, drop our ordinance for uh, flak and anti-aircraft suppression so that the Jolly Greens could get in to rescue the downed crew members. We lost a lot of airplanes on those rescue missions, uh, and uh, that's why it was such a uh, such a uh, uh, stressful and uh, frightening uh, aspect of uh, the duty. Now, basically, on a search and rescue uh, mission, uh, maybe the rules of engagement were... Uh Avoided is that a good is that a good word for it? Well, they were still there, but it, but it was kind of like all 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 bets were off in terms of getting that crew member you know uh, uh, rescued and brought back to base uh, safely. Sometimes two and three aircraft, Jolly Greens, A one E's, participated in those rescue efforts, and we also lost uh, fast movers uh, in those rescue efforts. It was uh, really uh, one of the most uh, uh, rewarding uh, aspects of flying the F-4 in a war that I wasn't crazy about, to be able to um, uh, rescue a downed crew member. Or if we had uh, troops in contact, if we had Marines or Army units that were pinned down by uh, uh, enemy uh, gunfire and we got scrambled to rescue them, then uh, that was a rewarding part of it, too. And we had an experience one day, I did, when I was the duty officer at the squadron that um, were responsible for canvassing the area and being uh, mindful of security concerns. And I see this young Marine kind of pacing out in front of our squadron. So I inquired to him, was, uh, was he looking for something? Was Could I help him? And he said, well, he said, no. He said, I just got back from uh, the bush. I was down in, you know, someplace. Uh, in uh, combat the, the, a few days earlier, and he said, I asked somebody uh, who it was that had saved our lives down there with their um, uh, napalm and hydrags, and they said it was the F-4s from the the, uh, the 366 attack fighter wing. So I just wanted to come down and thank somebody for saving our lives. And I said, oh, well, that's great, man. I said, I said well, I fly the F, you know, the F-4. And so I said, if you got a minute, I'll take you out to the flight line. And so I took this young lad. I mean, I was 25 myself. And I, I took this young lad that probably was 19 or maybe 20 out to the flight line. And, and I got one of the crew chiefs to put a ladder up to the F-4 and let him cl- climb up that ladder and look in that cockpit and see what that F-4 looked like. And I'm telling you, you know, you would have thought that guy had just gotten a, a half a dozen Christmas presents on Christmas morning with the with the, the the smile on his face looking in that cockpit and that's something I never forgot you know of that that young marine that that might not have gone home if it hadn't been for our mission of being scrambled and and uh, and rescuing uh, troops in contact uh, it was a team effort over there everybody had to do their job and uh, captain settles I have interviewed marines that were in I Corps and when the uh, fast movers came in or, or the Sandys, you know, the A-1E 
prop-driven Sky Raiders, uh, Jolly yeah. Greens, the Cobra gunships. It didn't matter what came in there. Uh, B-52s, for instance, they would drop their ordnance so close to the Marines that the Marines would bleed from their ears and their nose and sometimes their eyes, yet they would still just jump up and down for joy, asking them to get the bombs closer. Uh, yeah. The, you guys, you guys, uh, the aviation guys, you, you sometimes fought a very impersonal war because you were up in the air, but uh, i tell you what, buddy, it got personal when you went back to base and uh, you saw some empty bunks, right? Yes, yeah, well... That was the uh, the horror, you know, of uh, surviving the war. That, uh, uh, like I said, we had three F four squadrons at Da Nang, and and in my squadron we had basically forty four crew members assigned to twenty birds. They were assigned to the three ninety attack fighter squadron. In the year that I was there, Pete, um, of the forty four, at one point or another during my tour, twenty three got shot down. Twenty three crew mm-hmm. members got shot down and they recovered six that uh, on a rescue mission but 17 never came home and those were guys that might have been in the in the in the room next to yours or it might have been somebody that you sat next to at the club you know the night before and um i was uh in a position of because of my writing uh abilities the uh squadron commander had me uh, composing letters home of condolence to widows, oh. and uh, I'm telling you that was a uh, that was a uh, wrenching experience of uh, composing a letter that offered any minimum of consolation to a, a, a young bride that had just lost her you know her newlywed husband, and um, and it was um, one of those things that that uh, produced I think my survivor's guilt after I left. That because uh, there were really a lot of good guys, the probably pilots that were as that were stronger than me, and smart and and, and leaders and and uh, who didn't make it home, and so a lot of of us experienced uh, survivors' guilt that you know that we made it out, but so many of our buddies didn't make it out, you know. Yeah, uh, that's that uh, why me syndrome. Um, I think we've yeah. all gone through that. Uh, I was over there 30 months, Brian. I always said that, too. But um, you just, you know, that's in the hands of God, I guess. You just never know. Uh, you know, I have a lot of the names on that black wall. I, I, can, I knew them. Uh, I knew the guys. I know what they did and what they went through. And they didn't come home when you and I did. So uh, every day is gravy, Captain. Every day is gravy. Well, that's, that's why I rationalize it is that... Um, that uh, God had something else he intended for me to do, not that he didn't have plans for the people that didn't make it, but I felt it was, it was uh, my duty to return home and uh, to be the best representative of uh, my race that I could be, be the best representative of aviation, uh, and uh, I've loved giving talks uh, to the public uh, uh, about my books and about my experience, uh, you know, surviving the war. And uh, mentoring young people has been a big thing because uh, uh, the mentors that I had growing up in Muncie who were uh, successful athletes who encouraged me to stay in the books and uh, to be the best athlete that I could be, given that I didn't have a father uh, from the time I was eight years old, they made a big difference. And so I know that there's lots of young boys out there that don't have a male presence in the home 
that um, that I speak to and, and try to encourage and inspire to not use their um, the things that are missing in their life as an excuse not to be the best they can be. Yes, sir. I have heard you speak, Brian. You give an excellent, excellent presentation. We are going to our last uh, break, and we will be back in just a couple minutes. Stand by. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctor's conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, I am Roger B., host of the Locked and Loaded Show on America's Web Radio. Be sure to join us live every Tuesday at 1500 hours for the latest in gun news, gun products, gun politics, and other gun-related stuff. That's Tuesday, 1500 hours, America's Web Radio. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. All right, folks, we're back with Captain Brian Suttles. 199 combat missions in Vietnam as an F-4 fighter jet pilot. Uh, Brian, you want to tell us about that one mission uh, that was special to you? Go ahead. Well, as we talked about the the, the number of your buddies and and, uh, fellow uh, crew members that didn't make it back home, and... um, you know, when you're flying 450, 500 miles uh, an hour close to the deck, <clears throat> it doesn't take much uh, margin for error before uh, catastrophe sets in. And we had one strike off of alert one morning uh, that I that I titled this story "Springtime at the Edge," where we were scrambled and we're down uh, down in uh, two core, I believe, somewhere around Pleiku. And uh, lead, we was number two in a two ship. Lead rolls in. We're 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 helping uh, Marines that are trapped on a in a uh, river uh, gorge, and uh, and we're dropping at the base of a ridge line and pulling off sharply to the left. And when lead pulls off, he says, "A two, watch the pull off. It's tricky." And so that means something, you know, to us. And so we said, "Okay, Roger," and we're put, going in. And, you got to realize we're doing 450 miles an hour, and we're going down, and I'm calling dive angle and airspeed and and uh, altitude, and the front seater is continuing to press toward the target, even though we've passed the point where we should have pickled. I said, you should be pickling, and he said, I'm pickling, and before he could get now out, I had grabbed the stick and began a 5G, 6G pullout. We were going into the base of this ridge. And we would have surely uh, crashed. And when you take an air, an air, you take an airplane from the, the commander, you better be justified because uh, you, you're going to get holy hell if uh, there's any question of whether you should have done it. And so, and I told the front seater, I said, "Jesus, man!" You said you almost didn't. You see that ridge line? And he said, "B, I'm sorry, man. I kind of had one eye on the target and one eye on the um, on the ridge." And I thought to myself, no, he had target fixation. We were going 
going to put this airplane just a few yards beyond these bombs. And, uh, and I saved the aircraft. He got grounded. Somebody found out about our mission. He got grounded from, uh, for a few weeks. And uh, I felt like, you know, that uh, I had dodged one there. But I, I can see that just like it was last week still. Uh, and that was over 50 years ago. Oh, I understand. I fully understand. I know after your combat missions in Vietnam, you flew the KC-135 tankers for a while. Uh, I want to, uh, to get into your civilian employment. Uh, you went with Eastern Airlines for a while. Tell us a little bit about your experiences as a, a commercial airline pilot. Well, um, uh, I, I, didn't, I wanted to go to, to Europe to fly the F-4 in a European squadron where they would check uh, co-pilots out in a local program without having to volunteer to go back to Vietnam. But the Air Force didn't like the fact that I had not volunteered for a second tour in order to guarantee me an upgrade slot, so they allocated me to KC-135s and Strategic Air Command. At least it wasn't B-52s. Yeah. So, so I said to myself, I wasn't planning on a career in the Air Force, but I said if, if the Air Force wants to check me out in Boeing 707s, uh, you know, before I get out, then that's okay. Thinking in the back of my mind, that would give me high, qual- high qualifications for an airline job. And so, uh, actually, I interviewed for and had been accepted to be a, 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 a political science instructor at the Air Force Academy because I had gotten my master's degree while I was flying tankers. And I was looking forward to that assignment, but it had some... I, I had concentrated in uh, world communist movements and sub-Saharan African politics, which was going to make me an area expert in Africa. And I was concerned about some of the missions that we were involved in in Africa, and, uh, and I, I decided that I was going to turn down the academy assignment, and I got out and went to work for Eastern Airlines, <clears throat> which was a great airline to fly for, and Unfortunately, it uh, you know had uh, financial challenges. I was with them for 19 months before I got furloughed for two and a half years. I was hired as a counselor over at Rutgers University in New Brunswick, New Jersey. Did that for two and a half years. Got called back to Eastern. Figured I was home free. And then by 1989, uh, the uh, uh, labor issues on uh, of the property led the airline into a strike in March of 89, and by uh, January of 91, they were completely out of business, which then led me to a survival mode. I was a single parent with with two teenage sons when Eastern shut down, and in order to survive uh, until my next employment, I drove a cab in Atlanta for almost two years before I could get reemployed. Driving Uh, that cab... Yeah, driving, driving a cab, cab in Atlanta? Woo. Yeah, d- driving a cab in Atlanta, 300 miles a day, sometimes six and seven days a week to to, to keep the uh, for sale sign out of the yard was almost as harrowing as surviving the combat missions in the F-4 in <laughs> Vietnam. <laughs> I think I could understand that. Uh, and then eventually, though, you did get a, another job as a commercial airline pilot, right? Yeah, I got hired by a, a charter company that a lot of ex-Eastern pilots were uh, flying for private jet expeditions. We were flying MD-82s, which is a really nice, uh, long airplane. I think it had 160 
passenger configuration. I made captain on that airplane in six months because they were expanding so rapidly. This is after not flying for almost two and a half years. Made captain in six months, and I flew captains for that air, that for that company uh, until they had financial difficulties and went out of business on April the first. Uh, appropriate day to go out of business, April the first of '95. <laughs> And so now I'm back driving the cab full-time after flying captain on the MD-82 for two years. And uh, then uh, pretty quickly, ATA, American Transfer, headquartered up in Indianapolis, was expanding. So a lot of of ex-private jet pilots went over to ATA and and got jobs with them. And so that's where I finished up my career uh, with ATA Airlines and and got promoted to uh, 757 captain my last four years on the property you uh you, back then though a pilot had to retire at age 60 is that correct yeah the uh the age 60 rule was an archaic rule that had been arbitrarily established not based on any medical uh, um, aspects at all and um and they were in negotiations to uh, revise it when i was coming up on age 60 in 2004 and um, uh, in 2006, uh, two years after I retired, it, they did amend it to uh, 65. So, you know, captains can fly in the air- airlines now until 65. But it didn't yeah. happen in time to save me. And, um, and uh, like I said, uh, it, you know, it was time to, to get out and, and uh, to go on with my life. Like too many other pilots out I was in a, a not too healthy a marriage, and uh, the only way I was going to escape that marriage was to retire. Okay. Did you? Uh, well, I tell tell the listeners what you have been doing since you retired. You have not you have not rusted out. You are going to wear out, Captain Settles. Yeah. You are very active. Yeah. <laughs> what are you What are you doing these days? Well, as I said, you know, a big part of uh, my uh, uh, mentoring. Uh, initiative has been to share my story <clears throat> about <clears throat> about coming out of the Nebraska orphanage, you know, at three years of age, the struggle for acceptance. I felt inferior throughout my younger years because I was adopted. I felt inferior because I was biracial. <clears throat> and so a lot of those things inspired me to be the best that I could be. And so I had an incredible aviation career, albeit with uh, three different airlines. I flew over 10 different multi-engine jet aircraft in my career. And uh, I knew that that Vietnam experience was so unforgettable and so unbelievable, I had to write about it. And so I wrote about it um, uh, from the perspective of the things that happen to us in life that lead us down unexpected paths. And I talk about how my neediness to be accepted, how my dream of being a college football or basketball player and then going into Air Force ROTC, how that led me into aviation and how it led me to Vietnam, a war that, as I said earlier, I didn't agree with, but I I, I did throw the dice that I could get through it, you know, uh, flying a combat mission with the F-4. And I wrote the, the book, Smoke for Breakfast, a Vietnam combat pilot story about my road uh, to uh, the F-4 
and all of my childhood experiences that led up to that. <clears throat> and um, and uh, the most uh, memorable missions that I flew. And then, <clears throat> as I said before, uh, losing my job with Eastern when they had the bankruptcy and shut down led me to drive the cab. And that was an incredible experience, driving 300 miles a day in Atlantic traffic, Atlanta traffic with two teenagers. One of them was in college. The other one was at home, latchkey kid with no mom there, and, 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 and I'm praying that both of them stayed alive. And both of them had guns pulled on them at least twice while they were out there, you know, going about their business in Atlanta while I was driving the cab trying to survive until the next airline job. And I had to write about that. So I wrote about the challenge of keeping two young African-American uh, sons alive on the streets of uh, Atlanta and um, the challenge of getting back in the cockpit, which wasn't uh, a cakewalk. You had to prepare, and they didn't treat you like, you know, you had all this experience as a pilot. They treated you like you were a brand-new hire, and you had to come in and jump through the same hoops that the new hire candidates, you know, were uh, jumping through. And I learned some painful lessons about um, uh, having to jump through the hoops that the, these corporations put out there for you. So that and the mentoring has been the the uh, the the magic of my life, of telling my story and inspiring other people. I've inspired a, a number of youth to want to go into aviation, but I want them to know that you got to be committed. You know, you you, you got to be. Un I use the term unstoppable, not letting any any of your. Um, challenges in life get in the way of uh, your success all right let's wrapping this up brian uh what is the title of your second book and how can our listeners uh get a copy okay both books are available on my website which is www.briansettles.com brian brianhsettles.com brianhsettles.com and uh, the, the last book is a Shattered Dream, a single-parent airline pilot story. And that's about the challenge of raising two sons as a single parent, being an airline pilot, and then <clears throat> driving uh, the cab and some of the experiences I had on the streets of Atlanta. Uh, Smoke for Breakfast, a, uh, com uh, a combat pilot story is also on the website under other books. <clears throat> and if a visitor to the site just scrolls down. How to go, Pete. <clears throat> okay. Yeah. yeah, Brian, absolutely uh, a fantastic interview. Thank you so much. Uh, always, always a pleasure talking to you. Folks, that's it for this week. Please join me next week uh, on Wednesday. Have a good week and be safe out there. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.